On episode 20 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss deadlocks, logging philosophy, the value and risks of taking dependencies on your project, and why you want to work with people who don't always do what you ask them to. From IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Today is the day that we did not launch, although we planned to, but then we planned to wait another week. Yeah, well, the good news on that is that we did actually figure out what that problem was. Oh, Um, oh, I want to hear, I want to hear, I want to hear. So it was uh, a third-party library, um, indirectly. I mean, it's third-party library and our particular use of it. It was Log4Net. Oh, we were logging uh, in such a way that the log, during the log call, was triggering another log call, which is normally okay, but with the load that we have, mm-hmm. eventually they would happen so close together that there's there's also a lock. So there's two locks going on. There's a, there's a lock of like disposing of the database stuff that's going on. Then there's a lock of like actually writing to the file, mm-hmm. and. <laughs> They happen in opposite orders, so it's like a classic deadlock, right? So you, you release the lock on the database, and then you release the lock on the file, and then the other call was doing it in the other order, and they were happening so fast that it was deadlocking eventually. And it was wow. one of those things where it would happen like it was very intermittent, right? right. So we had, right. we had to dust off wind debug. How on earth do you find things like that? Well, you, what, yeah. you, you bust out wind debug. One nice feature in Windows 2008, and I think this is in Vista as well, in Task Manager, you can right-click a task and take a dump of it, like right there. Mm -hmm. So we took a dump of the W3 service process. and Uh, said take a dump. Uh Yeah, I know. (laughs) Anytime you do this, it's like like the territory for jokes is just... Uh, I get it. (laughs) (laughs) And and then we loaded up uh, WinDebug. WinDBG. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's some .NET managed extensions you can sort of load. Uh, you need like a cheat sheet to figure out what the commands are. And then you, you load the dump, and then you load the, dot, the managed tools, and then you can sort of just investigate all the threads. You can say, okay, show me all the managed threads, mm-hmm. and then say, show me what the call stack was for that thread. And what we saw was like tons and tons of threads that are all going, hey, I would like to log something. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> interesting, <laughs> right? You have like 80 threads that are all trying to write something to the log. So right then we kind of knew where the problem was. And then somebody on Twitter actually uh, volunteered to help us diagnose the dump. So I put it up on our server and he uh, he nailed it down. He had a great description of it, like line by line, blow by blow, of exactly what was happening. I mean, I, I'm I'm competent enough to sort of figure out roughly what was going on, but he really knew his stuff and really helped us out, and I, I, I do appreciate that. That's um, really so awesome. yeah, we, r- we ripped out all the logging. I was never a huge fan of logging. I mean, I guess there's a couple philosophies on this. Like, what's your philosophy with logging? Like, as you sit down to write a function, like, would you add logging to it? I mean, what's your what, what's your philosophy? I'm curious before I go off I on mine. Never, I, no, I never do. 
and everything. But you know what? I don't. I don't think I've ever worked on code that was sort of operational in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, because we definitely uh, put a lot more. Oh, you know. You know what? Yeah, I did. On, at Juno, we used to have all kinds of logging. Uh, the trouble is that my philosophy has always been that you 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 have a tendency to want to log everything, but then you just get logs that are you know 100 megabytes per user, and you get 30 of them a minute, and it can't possibly be analyzed or stored in any reasonable way. So the next thing you have to do is start culling your logs or just having different levels of debugging where it's like in high debug mode, everything is logged, and in low debug mode, nothing is logged. And it's kind of hard to figure out what you really want in a log. You, you know what? You know what a, a, log, a lot of logs, like I think of the logging that we did in Juno where people would call in with a complaint, and you try to figure out where this program is crashing. And obviously, you log the crash. That's easy. Um, but then there's some line above the crash, which hopefully gives you a lot of information about where it happened. And there's some line that you don't see that should have been after that, after the crash. Uh, but it never got there because it crashed sometime before there. And essentially what you're doing as you're adding logging is you're doing binary search, right? Where you're sticking in like, well, gosh, I got to here, but I didn't get to there. But there's an awful lot of code between point A and point B. So let's make an A, you know, halfway from A to B log point of some sort. And you put that in, and then you eliminate 50% of the possible places to look for your crash. Um, but I've never really that's, been able that's to... That's what we were doing. I mean, that's ironically, yeah. to troubleshoot this, this hang, which mm-hmm. turned out to be because of logging, we were adding more logging. <laughs> the joke just writes itself, right? It's like, it does. How many, of this. how many third-party tools do you have? Uh, how well, many third-party tools are a part of the Stack Overflow code base? Well, okay. So... <laughs> Uh, Dare Obasanjo. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> okay. Did you Dare? see <laughs> Obasanjo? <laughs> it's Dare. Yeah. yeah. Is it Dare? Yeah. Really? Okay. I didn't know that. Well, I've learned something. But he had a whole blog entry about how, you know, I had ch- chosen to write my own sanitizer, and that was a very like deliberate choice for, mm-hmm. for a number of reasons that I won't get into. But he was very critical of this because, of course, there were bugs in the sanitizer. Um, mm-hmm. Which they're going to be, and to me, it's about like it's it's about your velocity. It's not about where you are; it's about where you're going. And we're going to fix that stuff, right? And I'm making the sanitizer public as well, so other people can have a sanitizer that's not ten thousand lines of code and ridiculous. And <laughs> um, so there's a philosophy there of like building something that's reusable for everyone. Um, but I thought I thought it was ironic because he was talking about how developers should just you know pick a third party library and go with it. And and I think obviously it's a balancing act because we pick this logging library, which kind of caused a problem for us, right? I mean, partially it was the way we were using it, but the way it was locking the files was, you know, a design issue in, in terms of the way Log4Net works. Right. So I, I, I think it's a trade-off. I don't think it's always as clear-cut as you should always pick a library or you should never pick a library. I think there's always some in-between there. So for us, I'm definitely a minimalist. I, I don't like third-party libraries. I feel like we have a giant third-party library called Windows, called yeah. <laughs> .NET. <laughs> ASP.NET MVC is technically a third-party library. Um, but these are, you know, major vendor stacks. And and I do feel like, as much as we talk about open source and stuff, there's a certain level of quality you associate with these major first-party stacks, right? Whether it's from Apple or Microsoft or Sun or whoever. That may or may not be true, but but hopefully usually is true, that these things are really heavily tested. There is um, definitely, yeah, there is definitely. I mean, there's something I've learned over the years. And, you know, I started out with uh, working on the Excel team, um, the developers on that team, had a motto, which was find the dependencies and eliminate them. You know, they had right. the compiler. They would not use kind of untested libraries from other groups at Microsoft even. I love uh, that they had their own compiler. That is so hardcore. I can't yeah. even like, I could not even hang out with those guys right there that <laughs> hardcore. Hey, we, we, we have our own compiler, man. 
Yeah. Let me tell you why they had their own compiler. They had their own compiler because uh, Excel was getting huge and just compiled 8086 assembler was just too large to fit like on floppy disks and to fit in memory. Uh, you know, you were, you were really trying to cram things in there. And so uh, they, uh, they, they, they developed a P-code compiler, which um, basically, you know, it's like bytecode. Uh, they call it P-code. This is an, a very old technique, and it, 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 it compiled Excel into an um, imaginary machine, a virtual machine, uh, that was a lot more expressive than an 8086 uh, and had all kinds of additional features. And so the compiled code is about one-third the size. And in a lot of situations, this made the performance uh, a lot faster. So, for example, in those days when almost everybody was running programs off of floppy disks, uh, the chances are not floppy, but the 3.5-inch not so floppy disks. Uh, but but the the read time on those things was really really slow. And so if you could launch your app, if your app was smaller at the time that you read it from disk, didn't matter if it ran a little bit slower. It, the whole the overall experience would be a lot faster. Right. So um, there were and and if you could fit in memory without swapping, obviously the whole thing would run faster. So it was worth doing this P-code thing for a long time. And it's about the time of Excel 5.0, um, the 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 bit flipped on that, and it suddenly became. Suddenly, everybody had hard drives, and nobody really cared about the size of the executable, and it was, it was okay to have, a, I think, like a four-megabyte executable instead of a one-megabyte executable. And um, so they, they got rid of that uh, P-code back in. Um, but even then, I think they had their own compiler for a while because uh, in order to write really, really efficient code, they wanted to be able to control oh, – this is a long story – um, but uh, a pointer on an 8386, for a while, the 8386 was the target. And on an 8386, uh, a pointer consisted of, or even on the 8086 in general, a pointer consisted of two parts, the uh, segment and the offset. So it's like, where do you want to start your pointer, and then what's your offset inside there? And um, you couldn't just indirectly say, okay, here's my pointer, just do something with this. You could finally in 32-bit clean mode, but we didn't have that. And uh, what you had to do is there was this thing called the segment register, and you loaded the segment register saying, from now on, my, my pointers, which are 16 bits, are going to be offset from this particular point. And uh, the very loading of that segment register would cause all kinds of operating system traps to get executed and all kinds of interesting things to happen. And that was a very, very, very slow operation. So if you were doing any kind of pointer manipulation, which you were, because it was C and everything was pointer manipulation, you wanted to load... The, uh, that segment register as infrequently as possible because that was a very, very expensive operation. And chances are you're doing a whole bunch of pointer operations. They're all in the same segment for a while at least. And you really want to be able to just load it once and then maybe do your next 20 operations with that as the base register. And so all of the Excel code had this assumption that they could do that and gave them the ability to do that. And that made it just screamingly fast compared to the competition. I mean, I remember when Borland came out with Paradox for Windows, and uh, they did not take this into account, and they just used, uh, it was C++ code, so they really had no choice but to use pointers for all of their methods um, because it was all you know virtual tables and C++ objects. And um, the net result was that they just used these pointers naively, pretending that the top 16 bits, every time they wanted to use a pointer, they reloaded the segment register, and that just made this app really, really slow. I mean, it took 90 seconds to start, uh, you know, Excel... Could, could, could launch in, you know, 10 or, 10 or 15 seconds. Wow. So, um, so this was this feature that they eventually got added to the regular Microsoft C compiler um, called Base Pointers, and I think then they stopped using their own compiler. Right. But their philosophy was really not to trust anybody, 
and, and to have control over everything so that there's some hope that they can get it to work without having an external dependency. And, you know, I've sort of taken this with, with me a, a long ways. And every time I've, I've, I've failed to do that, I've, I've, I've tended to regret it. Every time we've put outside technology into fog bugs, we've regretted it. There's a lot of these excellent components, and they, they are really great components that are made by vendors, like .NET components and their widgets, and it's like, you know, the, the, the cool calendar widget drop-down that you put in your web page and all that kind of stuff. And inevitably, what I have found is that they are good enough for enterprise code, like internal apps that you're using at the insurance company, and they're just never good enough for the kind of app that you want to ship that has to be perfect. Or, or that, you know, they, they're just not... Somehow there's something just not commercial quality about them. You know, it's fine if there's 20 people using it and they're all using it the same way and it allows you to, you know, in 15 seconds put a little calendar drop down into something. But, but then you'll get to some customer who says, you know, we don't start our weeks with Sunday in, in, in my country. And you'll say, oh, and then you'll find out that this library doesn't have that feature as a hypothetical example. Right. Which I, I think that's one advantage of some of the web stuff is because everything is just public facing by default. You don't have sort of this this internal development ghetto effect, like because we have. I mean, to be fair, any talk of dependencies, we have tons of dependencies, right? It's just a question of what dependencies you want to take. Like, I mean, jQuery is a dependency, right? Mm-hmm. We're using the WMD control; that's a dependency. Mm-hmm. There's all these little add-ons for jQuery. That but you know what? If there was a bug, if you found a bug in jQuery, you would just go edit the source, and you would be shipping your your own private version of jQuery, and problem solved. And it wouldn't be yeah. ideal, but at least you wouldn't right. be screwed. We, we have actually done that. And actually, let me give you an example. So the WMD editor has a bug with international keyboards. Like, there's no way we would, have, we would have found this because we don't use international keyboards. But obviously, some of the people that use Tech Overflow do. And sure. they were, I think, understandably very annoyed because they couldn't enter, like, right bracket, which is, like, an important key, particularly in Markdown. That's one of the key, like, one of the delimiters you use sometimes. Yeah, the, um, and they actually, the pro, I'm still trying to get the that source from, from the author. So we don't actually have the source. What we have is, ob, well, not... I guess obfuscate is not the right word, but minified JavaScript where they compress it down so that all the variables are like A, B, C, and things like that. Yeah. So it's not exactly fun code to look at anymore. <laughs> yeah. But somebody actually went through and actually found a little workaround. And I feel bad because when, when they posted this, I didn't realize they'd actually found a workaround. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then I just didn't come back to it. But then somebody was complaining that this bug had stayed open for like three weeks. And so I, f- I finally then went back and put in that fix. So you're right. I mean, having the source is great because you can fix little problems that you run into. And when you pick up components from the web, if you're talking about JavaScript, they're all sort of, um, you get the source by definition. I think that's actually one of the great, I had a blog entry about this, but that's one of the great strengths of the web is everything is essentially open source by default. I mean, if you're curious about what Google is doing on, you remember when uh, you know Maps came out and it was like, ooh, you know, Maps, it's all this innovative Perfect. zoom in, zoom yeah. out technology. Yeah. You could just view source. And if you, if you were you know motivated enough, you could figure it out, right? There wasn't like an executable you had to decompile or anything like that. So and I feel like this, this leads to, go ahead. Unless it's all flash. I mean, like Yahoo Maps is all flash and you can't figure out what they're doing. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, well, that gets back into the whole, what we call it the rectangle problem in the browser. We have this mm-hmm. alien rectangle that <laughs> lives in another universe, and it pokes a hole into your dimension, and, like, this crazy stuff comes through, and, yeah. So, on a related note, let's let's close out the topic. So, the the struggling with the deadlock put us back, I would say, at least at least four or five days. So, in order to have a smooth landing, there's also a couple features that that I really desperately want us to get in before we open to the public, like, say, a CAPTCHA for... <laughs> I think that's kind of important <laughs> when we go live. Um, so adding, like, a week to the schedule really helps us have a smooth landing. I mean, we could launch on the 3rd. Honestly, we could. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it would be a little desperate. Like we would be really flailing, fixing things at the last minute. And things yeah, like no, we, we, we're in a rush. We can take another week. I was actually, I thought the, I thought that the end of August plan was a little bit ambitious. <laughs> and right. you know, the truth is that I think, I think we're both in the same position of like really being on the fence as to whether, or I don't want to say on the fence, but it's a sort of a close call between we want to do the Hollywood launch, you know, going back to last week talking about Aaron, Aaron Schwartz's thing, whether we want to do the Hollywood launch where everybody hits us all at once and the world comes to an end versus the Gmail-style launch where we just start taking, you know, maybe we take a 1,000 people a day or we give out invites or something to at least have some kind of control over the rate at which people come in. And you know what I kind of like now that my philosophy of this has, of this has gone towards? Mm-hmm. is It's almost like dating where you don't really want to seem needy. Like, if it comes up in conversation, hey, we have this website, Stack Overflow, if it's contextual, then talk about it, right? <laughs> but maybe we don't, like, have a whole post saying, hey, we're launching this new site, Stack Overflow. Don't even, maybe not even do that. I know it sounds very counterintuitive, but, like, just bring it up in the context of things that you're discussing. Because already, like, on Twitter and in email, I want, I want to reference things on Stack Overflow because I'm having a problem or I found something interesting. It's just a natural side effect of the conversation that I'm having with someone. And to me, this is completely organic. This is the way it's supposed to be. Uh, and that would maybe solve that problem of having the Hollywood launch. Like, people would find out of it, about it organically as we have conversations mm-hmm. uh, without us going out of our way to say, hey, look at this new thing, you know, poke, poke, go over here and look at this new thing. Um, uh, just a thought, but we could. Uh, I'm totally open to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we don't. Uh, well, this we have uh, uh, quite a finite number of people who listen to our podcast and read our blogs anyway, so they're going to find out. <laughs> but, right. uh, but but the site is very sticky and very social too. Yeah. And uh, along those same lines, I just emailed Joel today. Uh, we know we've succeeded already in beta, and and do you know how I know? Because we have a whole blog dedicated to hating Stack Overflow now on the <laughs> internet. So you know you're successful when that happens. It's like the stamp of approval. It doesn't even, you can't even, it's not even public. You know? I know, that's, that's, that's how it's a huge success. I mean, if people hate you and you're not even public, then you're tremendously successful. These people, they're going straight to the backlash stage before we even got to the hype stage. Come it's, on, you guys. The, backlash comes after the hype. That's why it's called <laughs> Backlash. Yeah. Oh, and a funny thing that happened on that blog, too, is so the way we secure Stack Overflow is very intentionally somewhat naive, right? And I love that... For the beta, from the beta. You mean just for the, the, for the, the, excuse the me, for the beta, because yeah. the, the site is not supposed to be secured at all. It's supposed to be totally right. public, even in the sense that you could just walk up and type stuff in, literally. That's what the site is like. So securing it is completely counter to everything the site does. And we really struggled, like, initially. It's like, how are we even going to secure this site? How do you secure a site that's not designed to be secured, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you want to write tons and tons of code around authentication? So the, the minimalistic solution we have is basically a very simple cookie-based solution. And I love that this particular blog, he found that out. I assume it's a he. It's always a guy, right? And yeah. <laughs> And he's like, look how lame their security is. They totally don't understand how cookies work. They don't understand security at all. You're going to trust them to build a website that you trust your security. And, and I was like, that just made me laugh because it, it very much you know, missed the point of, of that whole thing. Don't even, don't even respond. Why are we even talking about them? I know, I know. Some of the criticism okay. is actually grounded, right? Like, if there's something actually useful that comes out of it, I will use it and I will respond to it. And it's not vitriol yet. I mean, it, he says it's a blog about flaming, but it's actually somewhat reasonable. So, as long as it stays reasonable, I have no problem 
responding to it. I'm not going to like point it out or list the URL or anything like that, but I just want to say that we're listening. I mean, <laughs> like, absolutely we're listening. Blogging-harmful.blogspot.com. Complete waste of time. But you know what? If we get people to care about us, whether it's positive or negative, that means they care about us, right? Exactly. Well, that's my point. Having if nobody emotional. cares, then, then that's, that's the real that's loss. That's the real failure, exactly. If you can't get anybody to care one way or another about what you've done, um, like, for example, this website, blogging-harmful.blogspot.com. It's <laughs> going to disappear without a trace. <laughs> Even though I promoted it on the podcast, yes. it's going to disappear, which is going to make it all that more painful. When yes, nobody... But people who do stuff like that, they don't want attention or anything. That's no, not feeding them not. at all. They're not interested in things like attention, no. The work is its own reward, I think. It doesn't matter if anybody's <laughs> looking. Have you seen that thing on the... Um, well, I actually wanted... I meant to blog about this, but the whole concept of just not looking at things to... to basically discourage them or that conversely looking at things encourages them like the whole Paris Hilton thing and just talking about these things over and over incessantly actually reinforces the whole trend Mm -hmm. and there was a series of children's books and I don't know if you've heard of them they're called The Great Brain if you've Mm -hmm. ever heard of this book it's set in like Utah yeah, at the, yeah. Like the turn of the century. It's a, yep. And I got these books Mormon. as a kid and I was, I was totally obsessed with them because The Great Brain is all about a family, and I remember the family's name, but there's one central character, JD, who is the great brain, and essentially he's always thinking up ways to, essentially social engineering, before we had that word in sort of computer circles, Mm -hmm. basically getting people to do what you want them to do without, you know, completely of their own volition, which is awesome, right? And so the great brain is just like this genius of a kid who does all these social engineering exploits and gets away with all this crazy stuff, and uh, in that family... The ultimate penalty, so if they found out the great brain was doing this, of course he would get punished. And the ultimate punishment in that family was what they called the silent treatment. And the silent treatment meant that nobody would talk to you or acknowledge you for a certain yeah. period of time. Like they would give you food and stuff, but they wouldn't directly look at you. They wouldn't talk at you. And it was, it was just stunning in the book. You don't really think about this, particularly as a kid. I was, gosh, I don't know, 10 or however old I was. How desperate it is as a person as a social being, when nobody will acknowledge you, how profoundly affecting that is, right? And even the great brain, who's a smart kid, like hated the silent treatment. He would do anything he could to avoid getting the silent treatment because it was just such a brutal penalty. And I remember Jason Kotke was talking about an episode of The Simpsons uh, where I think these animated statues came to life. And, and the way they uh, got rid of them was, was uh, they started chanting, just don't look. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is led by um, Lisa Simpson. Just, just don't look at them. Just don't look at them and they'll go away. And it's amazing how powerful that philosophy is. Like if something's happening that you don't like, just don't talk about it, right? Or don't give it any attention. Just ignore it and look at the things that you actually care about and you want to That's cultivate. Right. That and was like the uh, Clinton administration's policy on Rwanda. <laughs> Well, that's the issue of social injustices, which I think is, is, is a little bit different. But there are yeah. definitely people who are, who are attention seeking. And, um, but you know what? It's sort of like the thing about trolls is like, don't feed the trolls or whatever. But you know what? Trolls are doing a great service to the internet. They're making it entertaining and interesting. Absolutely. And there's definitely been, uh, and I think I referred to it in the previous podcast, a youthful experimentation. <laughs> overflow. And we're still, in fact, seeing that. We're still seeing people just try stuff to, to push buttons and uh, see what they can get away with and how one they can... Of, one of the things that... Yeah, one of the things that will happen, I mean, it happened with IRC all the time. 
when people get sort of addicted to a social technology or something, they, they, they're addicted to the site, they love it, they come, they answer all the questions, is at some point there's just not enough content there of the main content that everybody's enjoying to, for them to entertain themselves. And they have to find ways to entertain themselves you know, for, an, for the next three hours after they spent eight hours doing the regular thing they were supposed to be doing. So on IRC, they would start these little flame bot wars, and they would write little bots to protect themselves against the wars, and they would try to cause splits so that they could take over somebody's nick and all that kind of stuff. And they weren't doing what IRC was for, which was chatting. They were they'd kind of taken it to the next level because they ran out of people to chat with, and that became boring. And so they started kind of attacking the system itself. Right. And yeah, we're definitely looking at that. And I mentioned the the captcha thing. That's where the next piece of the puzzle that has to go in. We have uh, rate limiting mechanisms. Mm-hmm. One of the early things that happened to us was uh, flooding. Yeah. So well, somebody wrote a bot that would just like revise a post like every minute to keep it on the top of the stack. And actually, mm-hmm. there's a disturbing amount of people doing that manually still, which I, I'm trying to discourage. <laughs> uh, the way I like to discourage things is by where possible. Uh, creating rules in the system that make that behavior sort of not desirable. Um, mm-hmm. Not negative necessarily, but things happen that make it not worth much to you. So let me give you a specific example in that scenario. So you have the user who's just editing their own posts like every three hours, so that's always on the top of the stack. So we have this concept now, and it, it's actually implemented. I talked about it on previous podcasts of the community-owned post because one of the great divides in Stack Overflow is that we have this ownership system where you get voted up and down. Your content gets voted up and down, and that reflects in your reputation. So you own stuff. So when you post something, you own it. And then you contrast that with the Wikipedia model, which is nobody really seems to own it. And we're trying to do both of those things. So the transition point um, we came up with a couple rules. And the initial rule I had was uh, edits by four different people will cause a post to switch from being owned by Joel, for example, um, to being owned by the community user, which means Mm. at that point you don't lose any rep that you got up to that point, but any future upvotes on that content don't go to anybody. They go to the content, which I think is the way it should be, right? I mean, ultimately you're voting on the content more than the person anyway, so hopefully people are, are okay with this. So seeing that people kept editing stuff over and over, I, I sort of bent the rules a little bit and said, okay, if you edit your own thing more than n times, then mm-hmm. it also becomes a community-owned post. So there's no real value to the user in, in terms of getting additional reputation to bump stuff up to the top of the stack anymore because if you edit your own thing enough, then you, know, you won't get any reputation from it. So it behooves you to just edit it maybe once or however many times you need to edit it, hopefully no more than once, and then just let it sit there and have people find it organically, naturally, the way it's supposed to happen. Yeah, and that'll happen more when we're open to Google for searches. Because I think right now one of the problems with Stack Overflow that some people have been experiencing is that they ask a question, and it's a little bit too uh, esoteric to get a response right away, and then it kind of disappears from view for a while. And um, those things eventually will, you know, once the site has much larger critical mass of people and is searchable by Google those questions will naturally have people come to them, and so they won't need to play little tricks to try to get them in front of everybody again to try to get an answer. I also try to copy a lot of things that I've seen online that have been successful, like conventions. Let me give you a specific example. So PHP BB, and I'm sure there's other web discussion boards that do this too, but PHP is the, BB is the one I know, has this uh, editing convention. So you, when you post, you can actually edit your own posts. Uh-huh. And I noticed when using PHP BB that... Right after you post something, you'll always notice some goofy mistake that you made, right? Like immediately. Like yeah. it's 
nine times out of ten this happens to me. I'll post like, oh, I totally should have talked about this or I missed that word. So you immediately go in and edit. Well, these in like in a certain threshold edits are not treated as real edits. They're treated as just go back in time and pretend that that's the post you originally made. Right. So it doesn't kick off the whole auditing trail of you having edited 50 times. Um, so one of the first things we did in Stack Overflow was actually implement that. And I remember talking to, to Jeff Dalgas about this. He's like, oh, why do we have to have this? I'm like, you don't understand. This feature has to be in there on day one. Otherwise, we're going to have so many revisions that are just <laughs> in the first minute or two after posting of just silly little things that are being corrected. And Jeff, Wait, uh, So you're not, you're not actually recording the, the revision? You're not doing the diff thing? Within if, a threshold. And oh, right I, now, the threshold is actually five minutes. So okay. up to five minutes after you post, if you edit your own stuff. Now, if I go edit it, it's a real revision. Now that's uh, I mean I mean and, yeah that's okay except that you sort of run the risk that the historical record is you know somebody posts something and it's seen as being sure sure if the if the X. threshold is like two hours right or the, the more you the oh, longer five minutes like let's say I ask a question saying um, uh, you know is Jeff Atwood smart <laughs> and then you reply saying yes absolutely definitely and then I go back and change smart to stupid like one second later. No, you, you could. Uh-huh, you said you were stupid. <laughs> and there's no track record. And not only that, but, but everybody can, can say, hey, you know, we always have, uh, there's, there's supposed to be a, an audit trail here. Let's look at the audit trail. Oh, look, it wasn't edited. Right. No, that's true. No, it does leave you vulnerable. And, and I think that's where you come to playing with the rules and seeing what happens. Like, and then another example of how the, setting new rules, you can't always anticipate all the side effects of the rules you're going to set. And, and you don't always get the behavior that you wanted out of the rules that you set either. You have to be very, very careful. So when I instituted the rule of five edits by, by the owner causing a post to go to community mode, the next day somebody complained about that because he had posted, and actually this is today, uh, somebody posted a thread on what are your favorite developer magazines. Hmm. And I, because it's not, in my opinion, a great question because it really can't be answered and it's very subjective and it's... It's not a great question. I mean, it's the bottom line. So it got edited a lot immediately. Like people started editing the tags. Somebody changed the title. Um, so the net effect was within 45 seconds of this guy posting it, it was in community mode. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of complaining about that. Like, look, I had no chance to get any rep from this post at all. Um, then I started thinking, okay, well, maybe what I should ins- – I kind of agree. I can see where he's coming from, although, I, again, not a great question. <laughs> Uh, but yeah. you could institute like a time you cap. Get, like, you shouldn't get you shouldn't get any credit for a not great question. Why right. should you could he argue that this is that totally? Question. You could argue this is totally correct behavior. Uh, yeah. I can see where he's coming from, and one one thing I thought of was having just a certain time window where <laughs> it's four edits by four different people, but it has to be more than one hour or uh, whatever time interval. Ah, uh, yeah, too much tweaking. You know what I would say. Just tell people, listen, if you want to ask one of these poll questions, like what's your favorite developer magazine, that would be a good question if you phrased it in the following way. What is your single most favorite developer magazine? Right. And instead of just replying, see if somebody else has already given the answer and vote it up. And then what you'll get is a ranked listing of everybody's favorite developer magazines in order from most favorite to least favorite. But if you say what's your favorite magazines and people are answering with three and they're discussing some magazine that they subscribed to a long time ago and there's just chatter going on in there, that the the question becomes a mess and it doesn't fit the Stack Overflow data model. It doesn't. That's right. And and I think that's the challenge is also getting people to understand 
what is the Stack Overflow model. And but we can, we can do polls, and we should do polls for things like, I don't know, should I learn C? Yes, no. <laughs> That's, there you go. <laughs> Everybody yeah. vote. Well, one, one advantage, and I haven't put this in yet, but you will be able to opt in to the community mode so that you don't get in your rep. So then you could post things that are effectively voting, like, questions, right? Because if I vote up, like, let's say we had, okay, what is your favorite developer magazine? And everybody that posted in it went into community mode immediately. All those votes would go towards the magazine, not you, right? Mm-hmm. I said Byte. You know, Byte is my favorite, you know, programmer magazine. It's a classic, right? So everybody that voted for that would not be voting for me. They'd be voting for Byte. I wouldn't get any reputation from that at all. I could not program my Atari 800 without the great articles I've gotten from Byte magazine. <laughs> there you go. But I, I enjoy, I mean, and I, I think I've said this before, but I, I think it bears repeating because I really enjoy working on Stack Overflow. I mean, it's really fun social experiment. And I think because we're getting useful stuff out of it for the most part, um, to me that makes it worthwhile. I mean, I know you call that tweaking, but to me that's, if it's a tweak that results in like six months from now, you know, hundreds of much better questions, then I think it's worth doing. My, my feeling is that if the tweak is a little bit subtle and a little bit weird and people don't know quite what it's doing, like that thing about how – the thing you were mentioning earlier about how if you do your own edit within five minutes, it doesn't get into the history. See, right, right then you're doing something that wouldn't be what people would expect. I mean they might be able to learn that that's the way that it works, but it isn't what they would expect. They would expect that they either see the history or they don't see the history. It would never occur to them that you would do something more subtle than that. And, and therefore, they're going to always assume the simple model, and therefore, they may have usability problems because they do, just don't understand what – what the friggin' app wants from them, you know what I mean? They're like basically, usability problems always occur at the intersection of the user not understanding how the program model works. The program has a model as to how it works, and the user has some understanding as to how the program works. And when those are different, that's when you have a usability problem. It may be small, it may be subtle, but that's where you have a usability problem. And so your best hope, given that you're, you know, if, if you're setting things up and you're saying, hey, I'm going to give you points if you do X, then everybody does X, and X is something that you want, and you told them that that's what they're going to get points for, and it's obvious, then that's great. But if you're going to do something where you're doing something non-obvious or a little bit tricky, or you're creating a little bit of uh, a conflict between how they think it's going to work and how it really works, um, then in all those cases, the best you can hope for, your best, the best you can hope for is that they will accidentally stumble upon doing some behavior that you want them to do because of their misunderstanding will cause them to accidentally trip into the particular dark hallway that you want them to go down. And um, that's that's the best you can do. And, and you should probably be, you know, I think you're always better off striving to accomplish, um, uh, you know, you're striving to make it so that people understand what's going on. And a lot of times that may mean that you can't have behavior that isn't clearly visible, that, that there's going to be some kind of behavior in there, like how you earn a badge or what, when wiki uh, edits don't show. There has to be some, you know, extreme visibility in the app. The app has to explain itself a little bit so that people realize uh, what it's doing. Right. Well, n- normally I would totally agree with you. I think this is a little bit of an exception just because, again, it came out of PHPB and these other very long, well-established messaging systems, right? Like we're sort of harvesting these ideas from like Wikipedia and message boards and wherever I've been online and I've had a community that I thought really worked, I try to steal those ideas and sort of fold them into Stack Overflow. So I think it's a proven idea that works. And I think it's just a peculiarity of human behavior that you're always going to make mistakes like immediately after doing something. So you have that little cushion. So I think it's kind of a special case based on human behavior. And then two, I think we have a community. I mean, what, of is it, what does it hurt to have it 
to have at least the transaction history shown. Well, because it becomes noise. It's like really s- tiny, simple edits that. And that's what no we keep keeping those. Uh, I don't know. Well, again, okay. we're not exactly doing. I mean, it's, we're a hybrid, right? So we're in between. So I think we we harvest those ideas from different places. I don't think. Hey, we... I got a question. <laughs> I got some questions. You want to listen to some questions? Yes. Sorry, I'm laughing. you'll see why I'm laughing in a minute. Hi, this is Trey Jackson from Corvallis, Oregon. Joel, it's great hearing your ideas. Jeff, it's increasingly frustrating that you don't listen to a single argument that Joel makes during your conversations. Woo-hoo! My question is: assume for a moment that Stack Overflow becomes a great success, Wait, let me just play that and they get nothing but good questions and even better answers. How do you intend on keeping folks interested in answering questions when the sheer volume of those questions gets so high? People will Google for answers, but they don't Google for questions. Hi, this All is right. Trey Jackson from Corvallis, I'm Oregon. Have to play it again. again. <laughs> That's how much you like it. You want to play it twice? Not Did bad, you not think? Keep... Wait, I don't understand how. Why was I not listening to your argument there? <laughs> I don't get that. I told. I totally was listening. I just. I just think in this one particular case. It. I mean, in, in the general case, yes, I agree. The system should be totally discoverable and consistent. But I just disagree that in that particular case, it should be. I think it's. Well, see, because there's a difference you know, between listening and just accepting what I say. And actually, that was the reason uh, that I wanted to play that uh, Trey. Actually, is that my problem is usually the opposite: uh, is getting people not to listen to me. Uh, I'm a. For those of you that don't know, at my day job, I'm a CEO of a software company, um, and we got about 20 people. And my biggest problem, I would say, well, actually, I mean, my biggest problem is dealing with New York City landlords. But my, my second biggest problem is getting people to not do what I say just because I said so. And it's very hard for them because, you know, I'm the CEO and I'm their boss. And I probably have more experience than most of them. And when I say do, do it this way, uh, you know, there's a real, real tendency to try to do it that way. Uh, and in fact, it's very easy. It's the easiest thing you can possibly do is just do what your boss says because then you have no responsibility over whether it was successful or not because you did as you were told and you can just sort of lean back and just do it that way instead of making the really, really hard decisions yourself. And so I would say my biggest problem is making sure that the developers at Fog Creek understand that the decisions are, are in their hands and that if I say do it this way, I, I want them to you know, take that for what it's worth. But, but not to do it blindly. In a lot of cases, I just don't have as detailed an involvement or as much intricate knowledge of what's going on. So, um, I mean, to be fair, I, 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 you know, I spend a couple hours a week on, on, on uh, Stack Overflow or a couple hours a day um, messing around on the site. I spend a couple hours a week talking to Jeff uh, on this podcast. Um, but, but Jeff is spending every minute of every day on this, and he's much more deeply involved in what's going on. And he knows a lot more about how these things are and how they work and how they should work. Uh, than I do. And uh, so, you know, I may have some general experience to give him, but I'm really happy that, that, that Jeff makes his own decisions and takes responsibility for them and doesn't just kind of blindly do whatever I tell him because that would be a mess. That would be the person with the least information making the decision. And if anything, you know, it takes me years to train a developer at Fog Creek that they should push back when I say stupid things uh, or when I suggest uh, doing things that they should make their own decision. The decision's going to be up to them. I mean, I try to remember to always say, listen, you're going to decide, but here's my opinion. Uh, but it's hard for that to come across as anything other than you're going to decide, but you're probably going to do it my way because I say so. And um, that, that's really important to me. So uh, th- this is a criticism that makes no sense whatsoever. So there. So Jeff, why don't you answer the part about the, um, uh, the second part about, uh, do you remember that part? Uh, well, right. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the relationship yeah. and the, the parts I think people aren't really seeing is all the 
discussion that went into building Stack Overflow before we even started the podcast, where Joel has these message boards that he's run for a long time, and Joel knows a thing or two about you know, building a community and, and rules that make sense and, and really big picture stuff. Um, so a lot of the design that you guys are seeing today in Stack Overflow was really vetted by Joel early on. So I think we, we kind of agree on central tenets, but getting down to sort of brass tacks of, you know, do A or do B or do C, but certainly in a big picture, I think we're, there's a lot more harmony than you may hear on the call necessarily. Uh, and I, I, it's been a great relationship. Joel has been very intimately involved. I didn't know what to expect early on, but Joel has been very hands-on, and it, it's really been a pleasure. So uh, hopefully you guys are, if not hearing it, then believing me when I say that there are much more hom- harmonious aspects to the relationship uh, as well. We're always trying to figure out ways so, to get into big big fights on the podcast itself to make it more interesting. But that's just because we're trying to get our listenership up from the current low two-digit numbers. That's right. That's right. Your dad needs to know other people are actually listening to the mm-hmm. podcast that his son is on. So the other part of the question was about, uh, I think, just sustaining interest in the questions over in answer, time. In answering the question, like how are we going to get people to answer questions? Uh, it's certainly easy for right. people to pose questions or, or to show up on Google when we have an answer. Right. Well, everything that's in the site is in there for a reason. Like the whole reputation system, the way you sort of earn reputation is by answering questions. That's one of the best ways to get reputation. People are actually complaining that when you ask a question, you don't tend to get as much reputation from asking as answering. And I think maybe that's the way it should be. Um, But currently, even in the closed beta, people are constantly emailing me amazed that they're getting such great answers and so quickly. So even with the closed sort of Petri dish that we have of the beta users, it's already working extraordinarily well. And I, I expect that to scale, uh, like in the Clay Shirky book where he's talking about Wikipedia is just attention divided by a million, right? You have a million developers with like two or three minutes, and we want to have our site be so low friction. They can come on in two or three minutes, find something that they're interested in and that they know about, and they can be authoritative on, and then just, you know, file a fragment of their knowledge away on our website. No sign-up, nothing complicated, very, very easy. So we think as it scales, you're going to see even more questions get answered. It'll be even better than the beta. So the fact that it's already working, to me, means that it's definitely going to work. Um, and as we scale out, it's going to work even better. Sometimes, uh, I mean, sometimes people even put a question and answer up for their own selfish reasons. You know, it's just a good place to record for their own, for their own benefit so they remember how they solved this particular problem. Uh, and I totally encourage that. Yeah. I, mean, I plan to use the site that way, as a matter of fact. It's like a notebook um, where you put down some little notes as to how you solved a particular problem, no matter how obscure. And other people will come in and improve it. Uh, Absolutely, and, and again, this—you know—the different inspirations for Stack Overflow, like blogging, Wikipedia, discussion boards. You know, we're trying to hybridize all those things together. And this one comes from the blog, where I'll blog about something. I'll say, "Oh, I thought about this, and then I did this, and then I, I learned so much from the comments." And I'll sometimes totally change my solution based on the comments. So even if you come in and post, "Okay, here's how I did it," you may still learn a better way to do it from other people seeing it and being able to collaboratively you know, add comments to the bottom of what is effectively a blog post, right? Mm-hmm. But with no friction, without actually blogging. Um, so I think it totally works, and I encourage that. Yeah, uh, we're definitely seeing it working. I think this question is sort of a, a, a non-starter, um, Trey, because, I mean, the, the, if it's working with 3,000 people, I don't see any reason. You know, we're getting answers with 3,000 people. I don't think there's anything different about those people than, than there's, there's nothing unusual about those people. They're not, I guess they're early adopters, but but uh, you know, there's no reason why they would have a stronger tendency to be willing to go in and play with the site, answer questions just for fun, 
And there's a lot of people that are doing it because it's, it's fun to answer questions. Well, I think, too, we're harnessing sort of the natural tendencies of the software developer. And uh, we talked about this earlier on the call that I didn't actually get to, to answer it, but one of the reasons that some of the complexities of Stack Overflow, we can get away with that, even though we try to keep it as simple as we can, but we have reputation, there's rules around the reputation. Developers love this crap, right? They spend all day working with rule sets all day long. <laughs> this is what they know, so they love that crap. And the fact that it's a game where you get to show off how much you know. Have you ever met a developer that wasn't like dying to show you like the best way to do something, like the only true way <laughs> that anything should ever be done is the way that they do it, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so we have a community of people that I think are naturally inclined to be very good at this kind of behavior. Um, and we just want to channel it to, to a positive direction where you know everybody's working together and not against each other. Uh, that's the only caveat I'll put around that. But I think also our audience helps us succeed because we're, we're building for a very specific audience. We're not building... Yahoo Answers, which please don't go there because you'll be very depressed <laughs> when you leave that site. <laughs> how, how do I tell if my girlfriend got pregnant? <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a big audience, and I feel bad because we've actually had a number of people from like Wiki Answers and Yahoo Answers, and people that do sites that are similar have actually contacted me, and they've been very, I've been very friendly with them and very open about like, hey, we're just building a site, we're not competing. I want to oh. learn from them; they're going to learn from me, and. Uh, yeah, we're just I'm, we're I'm so totally much more narrow than Answers.com or uh, Google Answers is gone. Yahoo Answers. Who else has one? Does Ask have, have an answer site? There's tons of these sites out there. There's like Answer Bag. Right. There's tons. So you'd be surprised how many Q and A sites there are out there. And I think I think Google and actually I found on Live.com. Microsoft has a site like this because I went to live.com for I don't even remember why. It's like, I guess it's ironic when I go to live.com. It's like, oh, look, I'm not on Google. Ha ha ha. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but there was like a QA site embedded in there. And like you could click on it. And it was like live.answers.live.com, I think. Mm -hmm. And I had never heard of it. <laughs> but yeah, go figure. There's lots of these sites. Uh, it seems easy to build, but, but to get the right audience. And, and you know, the, yeah. other thing, um, uh, the other thing, Trey, that's a little different here is that uh, w w to some extent, to be completely honest, we're not building something new from scratch. What we're trying to do is divert a lot of activity that's already happening on these sites behind pay firewalls or, or the, the charge monthly fees where people are you know, basically contributing answers anyway, even though nobody can see them except for the people who pay for the memberships. So um, there's a lot of this stuff that's going on. It's just happening in a kind of an a, 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 a inferior way, in our opinion. And uh, it, it's sort of surprising that developers, that the developers haven't been able to build something for themselves. You know, I mean, the, the developers, the, the, the people that get the best tools on the Internet are developers because they build themselves their own tools. And, you know, Usenet, the, the thing that Usenet is best for or was best for when Usenet was popular is getting answers to your programming questions. And, uh, the, um, you know, obviously the comp dot group of, of discussion groups on Usenet uh, were always the strongest uh, of, of, of everything. And, and um, so developers do build things for themselves, but for some reason they get good enough and they kind of lose interest. And in the specific, in this specific area of Q and A, um, the, the the state of the art just was not. You know, we, had, we there was something that was good enough, I guess, or there were sites that were good enough, and um, but they weren't good enough. So um, um, some of those sites that are out there, most of which charge money, uh, have literally millions of programmers contributing to them. So there's a uh, there's a big audience that's already doing this, and we're just trying to kind of snag some of them to do it in a better, cleaner, more open way. Uh, a way that's more visible to uh, Google, a little bit less evil. 
and so on. Right. Let me give you a specific example. So I talked about developers emailing me surprised that they were actually getting answers so quickly. They were actually good answers from the community. Um, this particular person, Sarah Chips, who happens to be a female developer, which is somewhat rare, um, had emailed me and wanted an invite. And I was like, okay, you know, fine. If people are if people are heavily motivated and give me their emails are interesting enough, I will let them in the beta. I, I'm, I know I'm going to get a lot of email now, so I really regret saying that. Uh, but I, I did let her in, and she actually uh, wrote back a report that said she had posted initially not as herself because she didn't want to bias the results because she had found that if you post as a girl, quote-unquote, mm. people tend to like pay more attention and actually answer your stuff in a way they wouldn't. Yeah. But she found that even posting anonymously, not as herself, she got a very good answer to her question uh, within like an hour and a half. So it, it does, in fact, work. And now she's actually posting as herself, which is nice. Um, cool. But yeah, so I'm getting lots of reports that it's working. Now everybody's falling all over themselves to answer her question the minute she asks it. <laughs> Here, let's take another question. Hi, Jeff and Joel. This is Martin from Spain. I'd like to ask you about your overall experience with Sidecar Flow so far. We all know that you two have been blogging for years now about best practices, what not to do, or what the common mistakes during software development are. So the question is, how will that experience turn out to be in the real world? Thank you very much, and keep up the good work. Thanks, Martin. So the qu what, what was the question again? <laughs> how did your Sorry. experience uh, help? Uh, you know, your, your, uh, uh, It's a big, broad question. You can answer it any way you want. Right. So what do we bring to the table in terms of, you know, our years of experience? You're yeah. starting a new project. I, well, one thing I've talked about before is, is really handpicking the people you work with. I really believe this is one of the most important things you can do in mm -hmm. life. <laughs> really think about who you want to work with and why. And, I mean, it's all about the people. Like, every job I've been in, I think that's the one key thing I've learned is, like, pick a job where you work with people that you mm -hmm. love, and it doesn't even actually matter what the job is at some level, right? I mean, ostensibly, it's something that you're good at and you, that people would pay you to do. It's all about the people you work with. So obviously, working with Joel, I mean, God, Joel is a legend, really. I mean, I'm saying that non-ironically, that when I was starting out, I was reading Joel. So being able to work with Joel is, is you know, fantastic. It's, it's unbelievable. And then being able to actually sort of handpick people from my previous lives in different jobs and say, these are the guys that I want to work with. It just turned out that they were available, so I've been very, very lucky in that regard. Um, to me, you know, I guess this is the lesson of people where everybody has different levels of skills and you can obsess about all the different aspects of the process and the tooling and all that stuff. But to me, it's, it's such a people thing, programming. And maybe that's why <laughs> you know, Stack Overflow and, and Coding Horror, it, it ends up being more about the other people that I'm programming with than the code itself, which is really strange to me because you start out in computers in like the early 80s and there's no internet, there's no modems, mm -hmm. barely. It's a very solitary experience. And now it's completely turned around. For me, computing is all about other programmers. It's completely turned around. Like, I don't even feel like I'm really programming unless, and people made fun of me for saying this, and maybe rightfully so, until I've produced something somebody else can look at, I don't feel like yeah. I've done anything. Right? If only the compiler sees what I've done, I have failed, which is crazy if you think about pure That's true. That's the whole like, demo. Like, there's just an urge to say demo to shout demo and have everybody come into your office and see what it is that you just built. Right. Yeah, and it's, yeah, the whole interaction between the people is just what makes it enjoyable, and it's the computers plus the people, man. I mean, that's it. That's what it's all about, and 
I mean, I, I feel very fortunate to be in the position that, I, that I'm in now, where I can sort of be at the confluence of my two favorite things, and, you know, it turns out I actually like people. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> you know, I'm not, as, not, not the uh, social outcast that everybody thought I was in high school. Hey, oh, I have a question. Can I ask a question? This is, this is off topic. Absolutely. We were talking about stock overflow all day. I want to ask you that. I'm, I'm here. At, I'm in Boston right now, and uh, tomorrow, uh, Neil and I are, are running this two-day-long business of software conference. And on, is it Wednesday or Thursday, uh, Richard Stallman is scheduled to speak. And oh, nice. uh, Neil and I have been fighting over who gets to introduce him. <laughs> Obviously, we each want the other person to introduce him. <laughs> right. <laughs> what would you say if you had to introduce Richard Stallman to a room full of people who obviously know who he is and what he stands for and... Uh, I think I would go with some of the more uh, – he's a uh, colorful guy, isn't he? Um, yeah. I think – Red. Could, I mean, <laughs> Red, being, I believe, is the color. Without being <laughs> – yes. Without being no. you know, a jerk about it, I think you could highlight some things people may not know about him that are cool and fun and interesting and you know, not weird, right? Which is a very fine line, obviously. <laughs> really running, means, out right? of, running out uh, of ideas. I mean, there's the uh, folk dancing. <laughs> the, he's in a band, I think. Yeah. 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 Well, isn't there some online comic that features him quite a bit? That would be a funny lead-in. I have to, unfortunately, I'm I mean, scared because there's a 40-page writer I have to read to make sure that we're not in any way. Oh, I see. <laughs> Doing you, well, if you've got to go the careful way, then it can't really be that fun. Can you, know, it? you know what I, What would be my intuition would be to say that when I got to college in 1987, and I never heard of Richard Stallman or the Free Software Foundation – uh, the professors told me to use Emacs as my text editor, and I launched up Emacs, and the GNU manifesto appears on the screen when you first launch it. I think it may be you know, one keystroke away from the homepage of your editor. And, uh, and I read that, and I thought, oh, this is a cool manifesto. That's very I'm, – I'm into that. I was on a commune in Asia, uh, founder of a commune in Asia. And uh, so, uh, so the idea of a kind of a people, people-y, people's manifesto for free – Something sounded great. And I read it, and I think the basic thesis, and I'm going to get this completely wrong, was that programmers should uh, uh, work for free in exchange for maybe some hardware that's given to them by the hardware companies who need software written for their hardware. And uh, that's, that's the way I understood it, which is extremely, extremely non-subtle. And I know I'm going to get flames up the wazoo, but, but, th- but that's really the way I understood it. And in fact, none of the ideas, all of the ideas about how, um, how free software uh, has something to do with, uh, well, I mean, it has a lot to do with freedom, and that's one thing, but all, all the ideas that it could possibly have some kind of business benefit or a business structure that would, that would work better uh, are actually post-Stallman. I mean, that's open source, which Stallman is very much against. Uh, or which he distinguishes um, very clearly from free software. And uh, anyway, um, and I remember thinking, you know, I kind of disagree with that. I think programmers should get paid, and I think it is in programmers' interest to get paid. And that was the end of that. Right. No, that, that's fine. I mean, that's a good intro. I mean, I, I guess I would go more non-traditional. I mean, I think he's a very controversial figure, yeah. and you can... I, I would sort of use that as a springboard. But like I said, if I don't know if you guys have to be really careful with the intros and things like that. But, I mean, certainly a hugely important figure in computing. I mean, I'm not, you know, don't mean yeah. to take anything away from that. I mean, the guy's pretty much a legend, right? Well, I mean, I, mean, I don't think it's quite it's, as it since 1987 to... when I haven't used code that he wrote. 
So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's my point. It's like agree with him or disagree with him, whether you think he's just the weirdest guy in the world or, or, or you know, somebody that's like a legend that, that deserves a lot of respect. Wherever you are in that continuum, you have to acknowledge his place in computing history. And very few people get to mm-hmm. that position, right? And uh, that's quite an achievement and something that I think deserves to be respected. Here, here. So who else? Who else is going to be at this conference other than? Uh, well, some speakers Holland. you might have heard of. I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, I don't have the full list of speakers. It's kind of weird. I, about half the speakers are people I know, and half the speakers are people Neil knows. Um, but uh, Seth Godin, who's uh, kind of a management uh, marketing guru, um, writes about a book a year on a marketing topic. Uh, they're awesome. Uh, um, I'm, I'm Eric Sink, who everybody knows as the founder of uh, SourceGear and one of the original developers of the, was it called Spyglass? What was the first browser? Yeah, Spyglass, and he does... Uh, right, his gear. current company is uh, Source Vault. Gear. They have Vault, which is a source code control system. Um, and uh, he's just and he wrote a book about the business of software, which is awesome. And he coined the term micro-ISV, this, this concept that there is a, uh, you know, a, a, an ISV, a small independent software vendor who's just... It's micro because you're making, I don't know, $10,000 a year writing some software in your spare time. It's, it's really small, but it's, uh, it's a, definitely a, a lifestyle choice, and it's very easy to go from a micro ISV to making your living writing software, as you do. And um, so he really coined that term. We've got uh, uh, Jason Freed um, from 37Signals. Um, we've got... Um, Krug, what's, remind me of his name. Uh, don't make me think. Oh, you got Steve, Steve Crow. Oh, man, now I'm jealous. Now yeah. I really want to go. Well, how fast can you get out of here? That sucks. Take the red eye, man. I can't go. I can't go. I, was just, I just went to Penny Arcade Expo in Seattle, so I just had my silly <laughs> little trip. Well, next year you'll come, but we'll have all different people probably. Um, so, hey, what about people like me who can't go? How can we participate? I mean, is there like, going to record the session? Uh, yeah, we're going to record the sessions, except that no speaker worth their salt is, actually allows their recordings to be used like in whole, like as is. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, the, why don't they just, <laughs> well, the Richard Stallman speech, I'm sure you'll be able to get an Ogvormus f- format. Uh, <laughs> that's a, I'm sure that's in the writer, like right on page one. Um, but, uh, we will actually have, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of making another movie. Did we talk about this on the podcast yet? Oh, really? You sent me a copy of Aardvark. I have seen that. That was our, yeah, that was our first movie. And that was, um, uh, it was trying to be like a slightly serious reality TV show about the interns building a co-pilot. And yes. um, it was probably better than what's on MTV. But, but, but the truth is the audience, the Joel on Software audience, really wanted something more technical. And a lot of people wrote to me and said, you know, I really wanted to learn how software is developed at Fog Creek. And this movie was just a little bit too light on, on that content. So this is going to be, gonna be much more hardcore. So it's really going to be about how software is developed at Fog Creek. And, oh, wow. Uh, I'm, has this started? I'm really uh, yeah, I mean, it's about a one-year project. We got the same filmmakers we had last time, uh, except that I'm, do, I'm basically interviewing everybody at Fog Creek, you know, three or four times to get footage for this thing. And then we'll, we'll splice it all together. In It's going to probably be, the current plan is to have several different formats uh, of this movie. Uh, there'll be a lot of short-form little pieces, like four minutes, that we can put up on YouTube. It's like, if you want to 
hear about source code control or you want to learn about hiring programmers or interviewing programmers or the phone interview, there'll be these little pieces that you can just download freely on the internet and watch. And then there's a sort of a more substantial 90-minute version, which is probably too much to distribute over the internet, but we'll probably distribute in DVD form. Uh, maybe, there, maybe by that time, there'll be a good way to distribute you know, a 90-minute DVD-length thing over the internet. Uh, and then at, at kind of on the high end, and what we'll, we'll hopefully pay for this whole operation uh, will be a, sort of like a corporate training video, maybe like a five to six hour thing that a team might buy inside a corporation to learn how to do software development a little bit better. And it'll just go into much more depth. Like there'll be like a whole hour of training on how to conduct uh, interviews of programmers and a whole hour on, you know, how to set up your tools and that kind of stuff. Wow. So you're like Howard Stern. You're like the king of the media now. <laughs> you have like your movie, you got your podcast with me, you got, you know, your, well, you're not a blog, that's yeah. a blog. Well, I mean, you know, yeah. that was the original idea that's behind cool. this podcast. Remember how I said, like, there's some people that you can reach in certain channels and they'll, they'll you know, they, they need to hear you. And there's some people that will, like, I never, I don't listen to Eminem's music, but I saw the movie Eight Miles or Mile or whatever it was. So, you know, there's, you do, right. different people will, will, you will reach in different channels. And uh, part of the goal is to do that. And the other part of the goal is just I have an inherent inability to ever give up. And instead of just saying, you know, we tried to make a movie and it wasn't as good as it should have been. And so maybe we're not so good at making movies. We just said, you know, let's learn from the experience and let's try to make a 2.0 that's just much better. I didn't really hear a lot of negative stuff about It wasn't. I mean, most people, you know who liked it? Um, uh, Programmers, girlfriends, wives, and families. Because, yeah, because it's really? a, it, there's nothing about it that's inaccessible to somebody that knows nothing about programming. And it, it really does convey to the normal person a lot about what a programmer's life is like. Just the sort of feel of being yes. a programmer. The fact that programmers get into these conversations about things. You know, that was probably, I thought, one of the highlights of the movie is um, when we told the interns that their job was to figure out if they could jump across that little, to the ledge of the neighboring building if there was a fire could they jump out the window and make it onto the ledge of the neighboring building? And programmers right. love to have conversations like that. And they immediately like left up to the whiteboard and started drawing equations from physics and stuff like that. And they tried to work it out. And that's really what our conversations are like. And that's what our lives are like. And to geeks, nobody knows. If you're a geek, you probably don't think anything is strange about this. But to a normal human being, this is very bizarre <laughs> that, we, that we talk that right. way and we think about those kind of things and that we then need to solve the problem mathematically to decide if you could make it to the neighboring ledge before you died. Right. Well, that's cool. I'm, I'm looking forward to that coming out. It looks like a, it'll be yeah. a while. But, yeah, and I, I definitely recommend people who haven't seen it uh, check out Aardvark. It's, I, yeah. I enjoyed it. I didn't think it was lacked anything. for The, not the way to find that is Project Aardvark, Project A-A-R-D-V-A-R-K.com, and there's a link to the movie. Uh, Project Aardvark is a blog that the interns kept that summer. It was a couple of years ago. And uh, so anyway, so the point of that is that I actually do have the filmmaker here at this conference, and he'll be filming a bunch of stuff. And hopefully we'll be able to have, you know, maybe just a snippet, like one sentence from maybe from a speech or from a hallway conversation here or there that will in some way contribute to the overall story that we want to tell with this movie about uh, how software is made. Very cool. Well, we should probably cut it off here. I think that's the... All right. Uh, let's see. Do we have any uh, announcements? Um, no, we're about... Uh, the same yeah. stuff? Same stuff. Okay, why don't you do that? Okay, so two things. We have a wiki for people who can't listen to this where people can contribute transcriptions of our incredibly boring podcasts and we thank you very much for that although i do have run request for the transcriptionists and the ironic thing is you're going to transcribe this which i think <laughs> is hilarious uh 
when you transcribe, don't don't write down every time I say uh or pause or yeah. Like make yeah. me sound awesome, right? That's that's my one request for the it transcriptionists. And yeah, it, do it doesn't have to be word for word. It doesn't necessarily read as well when it's word for word. You can leave ums and no. uhs and rip. Yeah, in fact, leave out whole words. If you think it reads better a certain way, just make me say whatever makes me sound <laughs> the right. most awesome. Really. That's how and I it's a wiki. Go in and edit it. Editor. People are editorializing anyway. You were right. It's hilarious. I've been reading. They, edit, they change. It's very funny. Anyway. Uh, and then the other thing is, uh, if you do contribute to the wiki, uh, since our beta has been pushed back a week, this will get you in the same day to the Stack Overflow beta. If you want to be in, just email me after you've done a little bit of transcription, one minute or whatever you're comfortable with. And if you want to get your question answered on the air, send a less than 90-second recording to podcast at stackoverflow.com. And we will put it in the queue and hopefully answer it on the next podcast. All right. That's it. Thanks very much. See you next week. See you next week. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.